Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right. Good day, everyone. And we are live. Welcome to another edition of Rogue Mornings. And today's guest is Ken Shortgun Jr. Uh, of Shotgun Economics, by far uh, one of the best writers, the bed po po best podcasters out there in regards to everything economic, uh, you know, geopolitical, politics. I listen to every one of his podcasts every single day that he puts it out, if not the next day. So I'm very delighted. And everyone knows Ken. Uh, you know, they people usually say, "Where's Ken? Where's Ken been lately?" And everything. So it's it's great to have you this morning. So uh, Ken, welcome to Rogue Mornings. Morning, CJ, and uh, glad to be here. Awesome. Very good. And uh, before we jump into things, real quickly, just want to thank our sponsors, uh, mycbedibles.com. Uh, go check it out. Uh, remain calm. I'm not sure where these guys have been. I need to get a hold of them today and see when they want to do a show uh, for the Crypto School, which is at the uh, cryptoschool.io, and then also liquidbase.io as well. So, But let's let's jump into it because there's a lot to discuss. Ken, the last uh, couple of podcasts, you've been, been really detailing out some of the economic numbers, the financial backgrounds of, of, of what's happening in particular to this, uh, the, the, the best Dow that we've seen in a long time, the, the longest uh, bull market that we've been in. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ken? Yeah, I think tomorrow, it's either tomorrow or Thursday, uh, we'll suddenly have the uh, longest bull market in history, uh, particularly the S&P. You take a look today, the uh, Dow is back up 71 points to 25,830. Uh, you know, it reached all time high about, I think, December or January, December of last year, January of this year. Uh, it reached that all time high and, I, and it looked like it was running similar to what happened in 2007. Because in 2007, uh, the Dow had gotten to 14,100. And then it started, that was the peak, and it sort of uh, had a 10% 10, 10 correction. It floundered around at the 11,000 mark, and I believe it was that 11,000 mark when we hit uh, hit the uh, crash of down 777 points. If you remember in February, we had the volatility play, which really was just a bunch of um, oversold uh, volatility. <laughs> the VIX, and that caused at one point to go, to go down about uh, 15, 18%, not quite bull market territory. Sure enough, in that amount of time, from 23,000, we're back almost to 26,000. And it reminds me of the fact that uh, most of the time when inflation is kicking in, whether it's Zimbabwe, most people don't realize that when Zimbabwe was in hyperinflation, they had the highest stock market uh, equity markets in Africa, Venezuela and Argentina, both during their hyperinflation had the, uh, highest equity markets, because if you can't afford to buy a, a couple eggs, then you might as well put your money in stocks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And you know, it, it, it just continues to be touted, but yet it's kind of, it's kind of odd because here, 
you know, uh, and again, I, I, I sound like a, a broken record because I've said this, I think the last two or three shows that, you know, we keep hyping this up and talking about this, this stock market. And obviously we know that it's rigged, but yet we're putting a lot of pressure on the uh, Federal Reserve to uh, keep rates low, to keep the politics out of the Federal Reserve, where now they're considering taper, tapering back and not have any type of Fed increases. Uh, just really make signals out there, Ken. Um, and then you complicate that by the, the the trade wars, the tariffs and all those things. Uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, the administration's, uh, you know, there any type of thoughts on, on the trade wars, the tariffs, all those things on how specifically uh, that may impact the economy? Well, that, that's a uh, sort of complicated thing. Uh, we'll, we'll break that down, obviously. But uh, here's the here's the scoop. Um, starting back at Bush years and or I should say Clinton years and the Bush and the Obama, they could care less about growing the American economy. It was all about engineering globalism, uh, trying to culminate with TPP and TPIP so that multinational corporations uh, were even above sovereign nations. In that, what they did was they had this realization that they had to, to bring down the United States. That's why they offshored all our, our uh, manufacturing and industry. That's why the, we started this uh, big movement of debt uh, lending out to emerging markets, uh, et cetera, et cetera, building up China. The problem is, is that if you remember back in 2000, I think it was 2010 when we were in the midst of the Great Recession, uh, Bernanke was sitting before the Senate in a hearing and Chuck Schumer, when the Democrats uh, owned both houses of Congress as well as the uh, executive branch, he looked at Bernanke and said, you need to get to work. What that did was it took, there's two, two sides to uh, policy. There's fiscal policy and there's monetary policy. The Fed has always been, since it, its inception, been in control of monetary policy. Uh, the money supply, expanding that, uh, fighting inflation, unemployment, things like that. Fiscal policy deals with things like the tax breaks, regulation, uh, that type of uh, trade agreements. That is the purview of Congress, while the monetary policy to protect the value of the dollar has been the uh, purview of the uh, Federal Reserve or central banks in general. So in 2010, uh, Schumer didn't want to have to deal with uh, what was going on in the Great Recession, so he threw it in the Fed. This is exactly what's happening today, is because if some of the analysts are correct, that the Fed wanted to use Ob Obama's eight years and then bring in Hillary and for how many years she was going to be to destroy the economy completely and transition into this new globalist one, then the, the Fed was going to go ahead and find a scapegoat, usually it's war, to go ahead and do this. Now, with the t uh, trade war and the, uh, and the tariffs, the Fed, and you can see them subtly, they came out about a week and a half ago where about four different Fed presidents and governors came out and said, uh, well, the economy's got the potential that it's going to slow down or, or possibly fall into recession because of the trade war and because of the tariffs. They're, they're scapegoating and blaming Trump so that nobody looks at their policies because, as I said, 
Schumer threw everything in the Fed's lap, everything from 2010 to today is 100% the Fed's fault. Their policies have created the uh, consequence that we are in today. That consequence is not just a all-time high stock market. That consequence is wealth uh, disparity where between the 1% and the 99%, uh, no wage growth, uh, low-paying jobs, and the fact that they haven't brought manufacturing back in. Uh, they've indebted everybody where household debt is at $1.4 trillion um, for credit cards, the student loans. And now the student loans, you got to, it's a combination of two things. One, Obama took uh, control of Sally May back in 2010. And Sally May is the, is the underwriting backstop for student loans. So now the federal government is doing that. And when there's free money to go out, what happens? The, uh, the Fed is giving free money to the government, selling as many treasuries as possible. Uh, we're backstopping it, and so that money goes to the universities. Universities have this free flow of money, and they jack up all the prices because they know they can do it. It's the same reason why our healthcare system is one of the most expensive in the world because we backstop it with Medicare. We backstop the VA. We backstop everything. When there's free government money out there, it's going to artificially raise the price because there's no competition. Now, one of the more interesting things, and I wrote this article yesterday, the, uh, the, one of the things about the Fed is, is, of course, they are in charge of issuing bonds and doing bond auctions. This thing is an absolute scheme that perfectly works because the Fed is not interested in profit. As opposed to if you wanted to buy a bond with a certain amount of yield, why would anybody continue to buy bonds when the uh, when the yield rate is below 3% and your inflation rate is 10%? You're giving your money to somebody for 10 years and you're losing 7% every year. <laughs> I mean, that, nobody in their right mind who has any fiscal responsibility, you know, fiscal knowledge would do that. But uh, this is one of the one of the things that the Fed does is the Fed goes out and when and when all these bonds are being dumped by China, Russia, China, um, whomever, the Fed is not allowing them to uh, sell off in the regular market, the regular bond market, because if it did, there'd be more sellers than buyers, and the yields would spike to probably five six percent. What the Fed is doing is they don't have to make a profit. They don't care about profit. So they're they're printing money out of thin air to scoop up all these uh, trillion, you know, probably several hundred billion to trillion over the of the last three or four years, and they're buying up and putting on their balance sheet. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the Fed removed from its St. Louis Fred database the live tracking of their balance sheet because now they know that nations around the world are selling their bonds and their balance sheet is, is skyrocketing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting, you know, you, you point out numerous things, uh, but in part, a very important aspect is the, the future generations of potential earnings coming in. And when you take a look at that, you think of, I mean, shoot, look at social media now, the amount of people that are posting, hey, my, my son, daughter is going back to school and, and all this kind of things that are being posted. But the massive amount of student debt right now, student loan debt that's accumulating 
And nothing has really changed in regards to education, Ken. It's not like it's that much superior. Uh, you know, they're coming out of school with much more knowledge than they had in the past. And it's alarming the amount of debt that these kids are walking out of. And why? Because they're, they're we're so conditioned to believe. And, and I'm not saying that educate. I think I said very much I support education. My wife's an educator. But the debt and the government's role in, in providing educational institution this you know, charge what what you want because these loans are going to be guaranteed is just absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's just a shame. But then on the other side, we hear these, the socialists that say, well, you know, college education should be completely free. It's like talking out of both sides of their mouths. You know what I'm saying, Ken? Well, it's a number of things. The reason that Obama took over Sally May and started pushing uh, all these free, this free college money, uh, free college money, get that, um, is that in 2010, of course, we had, according to their numbers, 10%, 10.3% unemployment, which really meant 30, 35% unemployment. Uh, so they needed a place for people to go so they wouldn't go into, you know, wouldn't rebel. You saw this rebellion start shortly after the 2008 financial crisis with Occupy Wall Street. Now, uh, most of the individuals who were there really didn't know why they were there. They just had a feeling that something was wrong. And so they were protesting for the sake of protesting. But after a certain amount of weeks, a couple of weeks, it just became, you know, like, uh, hey, it's a homeless shelter in the park. Uh, but, that, but that, of course, led to the Tea Party Revolution, which, you know, during that time when the Democrats held both houses and that then that, of course, led to the Ron Paul revolution. So you're moving more libertarian. And on the flip side, the progressives are moving much more tyrannical, communist, fascist, socialist, and even anarchist. If you think about it, the uh, Antifa is a combination of anarchy and fascism. You take a look at uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is is just a more educated Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. They really don't know what socialism is. Socialism, com you know, there's, there is no such thing as communism. For anybody who has ever studied the true definition of communism, communism, there is no government. There's no religion. There's no government. It's just people have this, uh, this, innate desire to be uh, neighborly in partnership with, with each other and control the means of production. But it's never happened. Every communist society, whether it's uh, China, Russia, uh, Soviet Union, you name it, it is a socialistic oligarchy where a small group of people control the means of production. Well, that's exactly what TPP was meant to do. Except the instead of a government officials, it was going to be corporations and board members. We have today. We're in America. I'll say this straight out: our gut form of government is not de democracy. It's not republicanism. It's fascism, and it's Bingo. Mussolini, Bingo. Mussolini's fascism. It's where the merging of cor corporate and state, because all you have to do is there's there was a uh, Wall Street Journal and New York Times article back during the first um, government shutdown during the time of uh, Obama. On the second day of the shutdown, he didn't invite Boehner 
Speaker of the House. He didn't invite uh, Harry Reid, the uh, um, majority leader, to discuss and try to deal with this. No. On the second day of the first shutdown, 15 bank CEOs, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Bank of America, 15 bank CEOs went to the White House. And what they were doing is telling Obama how this was going to go out. And this, of course, I believe was 2011. And shortly after, the raid on silver took place. Mm. That's what uh, the government shutdown ended up uh, really doing is facilitating that raid on silver along with a few other things. And uh, Congress was completely shut out because this was a corporate uh, determined outcome for the U.S. government during that debt crisis and shutdown. The other thing that people need to realize is that Social Security is completely uh, bankrupt. Now, how, what evidence do we have is bankrupt? Back when uh, Lou was a uh, Treasury Secretary under Obama late in his term, during one of the government shutdowns, the one thing he said was, is that Social Security would still be paid but if the government shutdown extended, then we would have to delay payments, defer payments. Well, just because you have a shutdown doesn't mean you're still getting you're not still getting your tax revenues. Everybody working still puts in their FICA and puts in their income tax. They're withholding. That means that the money that was coming in was not enough to pay Social Security recipients, and they didn't have any money in the uh, in the the lockbox per se to do this the shutdown kept them from borrowing money from the fed to be able to pay social security monthly payments so it's insolvent it's already insolvent the only reason that social security continues now is because they have to, they are allowed to still continue to borrow money so all these little things that you see during these little crises these semi-crises they lay open exactly how insolvent the entire system is. Yeah, no, you're 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 right on the money. And Ken, it's there's a reason they specifically don't teach how money works in, in schools, right? They may teach micro, macroeconomics, supply, demand, all that kind of good stuff. And I think most people, gosh, I hate to paint with such a broad brush, but people understanding money and how money works, and even growing up and and as of you know recent years, I hear this constant statement. Well. That can't happen because we'll, we can just print money. The government, we can just print money and everything's going to be be fine. And there's still, I, I think if you went out and took a poll, I think there's a good portion of society that still believes that that our, our government, our, our Fed, we can just print money and everything's going to be okay. But now we're, we're witnessing in this article that you wrote in regards to Treasury bond, you know, we could probably make a whole show talking about money and how it works. But why don't you talk a little bit specifically around, around bonds and, and why a lot of, of uh, countries, Russia, China, are dumping the bonds and what that impact that's going to have to us here in the United States, Ken? Well, the biggest, the, the biggest change that has taken place, there, uh, it's, it's, it's a combination of change, and, it, and it's happened from about 2013 forward. Uh, because the United States has control over the reserve currency, uh, going back to Bretton Woods and then even the petrodollar system, is that the uh, United States uses the dollar both as a economic and foreign policy uh, weapon. They should not get away. You know, the first Iran sanctions 
that took place a little more than a decade ago were by the United Nations. It was a joint uh, voted thing. These current sanctions are being U.S. only. It's the same thing, the sanctions against Russia, U.S. only. Okay, an individual country should not be allowed at all to impose sanctions and then enforce others to follow, i.e. what they do with Europe. If you don't enforce these sanctions against uh, Russia, then we're going to affect you with SWIFT. Uh, if you don't enforce sanctions against Iran, we're going to affect you with SWIFT. Well, in 2013, of course, we had the first, Russia saw this, and so they started making agreements with uh, China to start selling oil in uh, currencies other than the dollar. The reason that uh, Russia is selling treasuries and dumping their dollars completely is because of the sanctions. It limits the scope of which the United States can impose economic warfare on a country. And so it's all about de-dollarizing. This is what Iran's doing. Iran first uh, is in the process of talking with Russia for bilateral trade. They are also in the process of uh, ordering that all trade partners in the future and since Europe desperately needs to trade with Iran, they're going to do it in the euro. And then just yesterday, uh, the one of the finance ministers in Iran came out and said that they're going to see what they can do about no longer accepting the dollar in oil trade, i.e. through OPEC. So that de-dollarization is every time the United States tries to impose these sanctions on whatever country that is creating the whole uh Really, it's the Achilles heel and shooting him in the foot. The Achilles heel is this for the United States. They have vast power by being able to print the reserve currency and force other nations to have to use it as a medium of exchange in international trade. The Achilles heel is, is that the entire United States economy and financial system is propped up by their ability to uh, print money and lend it out. If that ends, then the United States instantaneously becomes a third world country, at least until it can, you know, remake itself. So that's why this transition is going through. It's similar to uh, what happened, you know, in 1913. We had a gold, we had a pure gold standard and we had the Federal Reserve take place. We, uh, the Federal Reserve was necessary because within a few years, we were going to have World War One. That was already planned. And uh, from there, of course, Europe uh, Europe went through a massive recession. What did it do? The, the whole thing we're looking at now, we're in the second decade of uh, the 21st century. During the second decade of the 20th century was a populist movement. Most people don't uh, realize that World War I ended four empires. Four empires uh, completely dissolved at the end of World War I. There was the Habsburg, which was the Austro-Hungarian. There was the one of Frederick the Great, Kaiser Wilhelm. There was the Russian Empire of the Tsars, and then the Ottoman Empire dissolved. We had the rise of uh, uh, Serbia, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland. We had the creation of all these states. This is why when we see this populist movement that's going on, it's it's you know, something that has happened back in the 1800s, we had Napoleonic Wars, and that, of course, led to a lot of change when that ended. It, the second decade of every century is like a populist movement and, a, and an area of chaos. Wow. Unfortunately, it's both economic 
in some aspects, and it's also uh, war. The one thing we haven't had so far is the war. But the big difference this, this time is, is that the uh, empires, unlike Germany, who Kaiser was a warmonger, Britain, Britain never met a war that it didn't want to fight. The Ottoman Empire was uh, the sick man of Europe. They were desperate. Austro-Hungarian uh, had just had its uh, heir, heir to the throne assassinated. They were in the mood for war. Everybody was willing to go to war. Today, Russia and China don't want to go to war. And so this is why the United States is having to use economic warfare uh, to do this because, one, Russia and China are bigger than, say, the United States and whatever European allies they can cobble together through NATO. Uh, the U.S., the thing is, is the U.S. wouldn't lose a war. They wouldn't win. Everybody would lose. That's what mm. that's what having nuclear weapons would do. Yeah. But with that being said, uh, in the, the uh, methodology that the Russia and China are doing is we're not going to fight you. We're going to isolate you. And yeah. by ditching the yeah. dollar and, and by cultivating like China is doing in Africa, Africa. I mean, you remember a few years ago where Rwanda was like uh, in a genocidal war and it was just absolutely, you know, under extreme conditions. You had the George Clooney's of the world uh, coming out there doing his uh, little, you know, PAs about uh, Rwanda. Yeah. You take yeah. a look at Rwanda. Rwanda is suddenly becoming a metropolis. And it's all because of China. Why doesn't the United States go out and build and develop instead of destroy like in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria? Because the United States doesn't care about partners. It cares about dominance. That's what the deep state really is about. It's not it's not America or Americans in general. It's that it's that shadow government that has been uh, culminating all of this, you know, the Ukraine coup. When, when you're run by a foreigner in George Soros, uh, like many in the Democratic Party, maybe in the many in the Republican Party, many in the uh, in the bureaucratic offices of the FBI, the CIA, et cetera, et cetera. When you're being run by corporate entities, I said we're a fascist government. Then this is what you get. They're all uh, it's all about dominance, control, and money. Now, one of the more fascinating things I, I always wondered why nobody ever brought this up, especially when the mainstream media. They have the audacity to claim that uh, that Crimea is not is not Russian. My response is, how quickly you forget your Lord Tennyson and the charge of the Light Brigade. That poem was about Britain trying to take Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula from Russia in the 19th century. It's always been, you know, and no one mentions that. <laughs> but by the way, Crimea was originally an Ottoman Empire peninsula that Russia took, and I believe it was uh, Ivan Ivan the Terrible who took it from the from the Mongolians or from the from the Ottomans or something like that. So they've had it for five hundred years, uh, but it's become a standpoint. Uh, most of the uh, the sanctions are tied to Crimea voting to move back into Russian Russian territory because they've always been Russian, and yet these are the things that are used as political moves rather than to try to 
bring about a uh, a world. And this is this is the other thing. When, when a nation is financially bankrupt, as Gerald Salente go, says, they go to war. Mm-hmm. That's why you're seeing the attempt at a war, uh, at instilling war, because they know deep down that the entire financial system died in 2008. And all that uh, the QE and all this money printing has done is the equivalent of putting a, a brain dead uh, body in a respirator and still pumping oxygen and artificially stimulating the heart. No, I, I completely agree, Ken. And for the majority of people who think that in regards to the U.S. and, and, and our banks, U.S. banks and, and their money, the deposits that they have in there, uh, you know, Turkey's a great example. So typically when there's a currency crisis, things have happened, you know, Ken, what usually happens during the, those scenarios? I mean, there's usually, you know, a, a rush on the banks. Usually there's tie-in. Uh, most people don't understand specifically uh, how that works. And we've seen recently a couple of examples, you know, Venezuela being one, and then also in Turkey with their recent, you know, currency crisis. And, and Turkey very well uh, could be like one of those potential flashpoints. Now the U.S. media will have you believe that this main, you know, issue with Turkey is in regards to this uh, Christian minister in Turkey. And that's the whole reason that we're, we're willing to go to war with them. But why don't you break that down for a little bit for us, please? No, the, the pastor is, is, a, is, is, is a uh, canard. It's, it's a, it's a uh, false flag there. The whole thing is because Turkey is pivoting to Russia. That's the only reason that, that we're going after Turkey. Now, here's the thing. Um, after 2010, during the Great Recession, there was nothing for these banks that were getting this cheap money at 0% interest rates to invest in, in Europe or in the United States. So they started uh, lending money and investing in emerging markets. This is why the BRICS nations, you know, the emerging markets, they became the BRICS. They, that's where a lot of the growth came while the West was in Great Recession. Uh I've heard uh, estimates between 14 and 17 trillion dollars uh, in do- in dollar denominations were invested or lent out to the emerging markets. This is the key, okay? With the dollar strengthening, if you notice, it's the the dollar strengthening from 89, 88 about uh, six, seven months ago to yeah. it's now near 97. On last Wednesday, it nearly touched 97. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's been since about 2010, 2012, it's been five to six, seven years. Those loans are being due. Well, if the dollar strengthens, that means these currencies in these emerging market countries are devaluing. They're get, they're less against the dollar. But the loans are made in dollars. So they have to go out and spend more currency to buy dollars just to pay back these loans. They can't do it. Um, the world is going into recession right now, so it's not like they have the growth to be able to cover this. And thus you have uh, the emerging market, what you're seeing in Turkey, what you're seeing in um, Argentina. You know, Argentina and Venezuela are two separate birds. Argentina has been back and forth between hyperinflation and whatever in, you know, several times since the, the 90s. Why? Uh, you know... I'm not going to say that South American and uh, Central American countries are more corrupt than the United States, but the big difference is is that the corruption is mostly at the top in the U.S. 
i.e. Wall Street, the corporations, and the government. The intrinsic uh, corruption isn't necessarily with the people. But unfortunately, in places like, uh, you know, Venezuela, uh, Argentina, Brazil, corruption is institutional. I mean, if you were to travel down uh, to Mexico to, say, Baja or to Penasco to uh, Rocky Point, uh, chances are that you're going to get pulled over for no real reason by the uh, federales, and you got to pay a bribe. I mean, it's institutional. Right. Um, the, the government's working with the cartels. They're, now, this new president is trying to stop this, but it's so saturated that it's it's really difficult to do. This is why they keep going back and forth into, you know, uh, you know, if you take a look at one, one of the biggest jokes I like to say is they love to have uh, Mexican Independence Day. Well, which one? In the last uh, 250, 300 years, they've had five revolutions, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but with that being said, Turkey, uh, Turkey has been taken over by a despot. It's no different than Italy was taken over by Mussolini. Turkey has been a vassal state of the United States going back to the Cold War. Matter of fact, Turkey was intrinsic to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because what ended up happening is, after the negotiations, Russia was going to pull out any missiles they may have had in Cuba, and the U.S. pulled out their missiles from Turkey that were aimed at the Soviet Union. So Turkey has been that linchpin. And if you think about it, Turkey is the gateway from east to west. And there's a right. it's, less, it's less than a mile between the Bosphorus Strait from Turkey to Greece. Uh, Turkey, of course, is, in, you know, just right there into Russia, into uh, Central Asia, into the Middle East. Turkey is the gateway. It's one of the most important geopolitical and geographical places on the earth. And that's why it's, it's of significant importance. Um, so with Turkey uh, pivoting into, uh, into East, or yeah, over to East, the United States loses a vastly important uh, geopolitical uh, location to be able to wage war and control Central Asia and move into, you know, against Russia, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of the reasons why NATO is suddenly putting so many uh, troops on, on the border of Finland and uh, um, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, Absolutely. Ken, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about specifically here in the U.S. Now, I know that you've continued to document it in regards to the, the, the pension crisis that's occurring. And again, there's continued cracks, uh, you know, a, a few states that come to mind. Uh, but where, where would, I mean, gosh, we've seen, you know, perhaps uh, cities, municipalities that have needed, you know, you know, state level assistance, but not to the tune where now the federal government is actively looking at these pensions in these states and whether what are they going to do is there any any updates or do you have any information in regards to uh the pension crisis you know they want to think they want to call it fake news that there's actually a pension crisis occurring in the u.s but there is indeed right oh there's been a pension crisis for a while but uh yeah i mean this the thing about it is is you've got to take a look at um what the fed has done the Fed has made it so that these pension funds cannot use uh, 
historic uh, vehicles to uh, earn money, earn to grow, to be able to pay these things. It used to be you could get six or seven percent for a bond, uh, municipal bond, for a corporate bond, for uh, a treasury, for an annuity. These were the type of vehicles because they were safe and they gave you a good yield and they were able to keep up with inflation. But when you expand the money supply, the way like the Fed has done since 2010, this is why, according to shadow stats, we're at well over 10% inflation. Forget that 2.9% garbage. We're at 10% inflation annually. And we've been at 10% inflation. As a matter of fact, I've got his chart up. Um, we have been at 4% since uh, 2014. And we have shot from 4% to about 10.3% in just the last four years. So inflation now, and this is why the Fed is tightening. The Fed is tightening because they know the history of stagflation. And that's what we're in. We're in stagflation. For those who don't know, stagnant or stagflation is a stagnant economy with rising inflation. And interestingly enough, in the 1970s, it also means that you have high employment. High employment, wages aren't going, but prices are shooting through the roof. Well, what ended up having, having to happen to stop inflation? In 1979, the interest rates were already at 7.5%. Volcker was the uh, the president of the New York Fed in 79, and he, raised, he got them to raise interest rates to 9.5%. That was 9.5%, but in, in, uh, inflation was at 13%. At 9.5%, they still couldn't halt inflation. It was still rising. This is why when he became the head of the entire Fed, he went in and uh, jacked up the rates over the next two years to 21%. That's how you killed the inflation. Guess what? We are sitting at not even 2%. <laughs> We're at 10% inflation, but only 2%. It, for every, and, and because of this, back in Reagan years, the national debt was only $500 billion. So you could afford to raise interest rates because they weren't borrowing as much. Now we're having deficits that are at least one point uh, one one trillion to one point four trillion. We've got twenty one trillion dollars, give or take, uh, that has to be rolled over about every five years. Every one percent that the the Fed raises interest rates is approximately two hundred twenty five billion dollars out of the budget just on interest payments alone. So imagine if we were to try to raise the interest rates up to about seven, eight percent. That's an additional six percent times two twenty-five. Uh, that's about one point five trillion dollars in interest rates on our already budget that we're borrowing one point four trillion just to sustain. Mm. So when it comes to the pension funds, the their only thing they could do was to go to the stock markets because the Fed's propping up the stock markets against their mandate. If if Trump really wanted to, he could go to court uh, about the Fed because they're propping up the stock markets. That's not in their mandate. They're breaking the law. But, as I said, fascism, the corporations run the government, not vice versa. So the the pension funds are reliant upon the stock markets and the stock markets 
are propped up with four or five stocks. The FANG stocks pretty much run NASDAQ and, and the S&P. If you take a look, something like 80% of all stocks are actually in the red now for, for the year, for the last several years. Wow, you said 80%? 80%. Wow. Yeah, four stocks are doing it. What's saving the stock market in this is take a look at volume. 75% of all trades are being done by high-frequency trading computers, not retail investors, not anybody else. People don't have any money. As I mentioned, they're already in debt, $1.4 trillion for credit cards. Their wages aren't going up, and they've got, they're, not, they're not playing the stock market. It's stock buybacks, and then if anybody wants to go see some of the previous videos over the past uh, month by Lynette Zhang, she does a weekly update of all the corporate buybacks by the insiders uh are, are this insider nice. selling and the corporate buybacks <laughs> and you know it's it's one of those Massive. old saying if you're going to invest in a company you want to see what the insider is doing are the insiders buying stock in their own company because they believe it's it's going to go up or are they selling what's that old saying if you want to be rich you do what the rich do what Who's, who's one of the richest man, men in America? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett isn't buying jack squat. He's sitting on cash. There's nothing of value to buy. Uh, it's the same thing with, uh, with these companies. The insiders are selling because all the money that they make borrowing at low, low, uh, low interest rates is they're doing stock buybacks because there is no growth. If they didn't do the stock buybacks to manipulate their price to earnings uh, ratio of their shares, then their their uh, their stock prices would absolutely collapse because their revenues would uh, lose to expectations. Right. The whole right. thing is just a manipulation and a and a, uh, a watered down. And you have if uh, one thing I would suggest is there was a great article slash white paper that was written by a university professor over the past month or two months, and he said that there is a natural law a natural law called reversion to the mean. What does that mean? That means in nature, if an ecological system is allowed to just function as it is, it's going to have a natural equilibrium balance. Trees are going to grow. Uh, you know, you're going to have, uh, uh, animals are going to, are going to prosper in that until, until it gets to a point where there's too many and the resources in that local area are over overextended. Well, there's another way to really screw up an ecological system. Um, introduce something that is not natural to the system, i.e. what they did in, in uh, Idaho by taking this endangered, huge gray wolf and putting him in an ecosystem there in Idaho, which they haven't been in thousand years. And what ended up happening? Within a decade, all of the uh, of the animals and that were, were were gone these wolves were uh were predators who pretty much destroyed the entire ecosystem mm. okay this is exactly what's happening in the financial system when you put excess money into something you uh you artificially uh prop up things that are beyond their their normal balance in nature when it gets to that point that the ecosystem is, is out of balance, it will force itself back to the mean. This is what it did in 2008. 
The stock market got to a high of 14,100. And in the midst of the Great Recession in 2009, the stock market was at 6,600. We are now almost double what 14,000 is. We're at 25,800. All of that is uh, is propped up in just the past four years with all of this money, all these stock buybacks, etc. What's going to happen when they can no longer fuel it? It's going to revert to the mean. The stock market is going to go back to below 10,000. Once it goes below 10,000 for all these pension funds that have invested in stocks, you think that they're being 60% uh, or 40% underfunded is bad? How about being 70, 80% underfunded? And these, most of these are municipal uh, and, and state run uh, pension funds, unlike the private ones that are protected by the Pension Guarantee Corporation. No, state and local ones are that are controlled by the state don't have that backup. Ken, we haven't talked about uh, the metals or cryptos, but also uh, very important uh, for our listeners. And, you know, you can decide this is your call, but in, just in regards to what you've experienced with the amount of work uh, that you've had to change with uh, shotgun economics, you know, shifting away, um, which, which would you rather talk about? Because, again, I, I, I truly enjoy your work. I, I really want to support it properly. Uh, so. You know, part of me thinks that our audience needs to understand specifically, you know, what happened and and why you need your you need their help right now to help you know to promote your work and all that kind of good stuff. So so you take it where you want to go. Yeah, um, let's let's talk about cryptocurrencies real quick. Okay, cool. Um, I've from day one I've treated cryptocurrencies as you would any speculative investment, speculative asset. I've not thought that it's it's money because. I looked at it this way. If I'm not a supporter of an unbacked fiat currency, why would I be a supporter of an unbacked digital form of money? But with that being said, since most investments are paper traded, it's just paper, you're not actually buying a thing, there is, there is profit to be made in trading in a digital security like cryptocurrencies. Uh, last year, of course, we had the, the cryptocurrency phenomenon. And I'm talking this phenomenon was so great that the amount of gains for cryptocurrencies were the highest in history. There were some cryptocurrencies that had a 100,000% uh, gain. 100,000%. Now, think about it. If it doubles, wow. it's 100%. Some were 100,000%. But you've got to understand what uh, the American uh, investor is. The American investor is not a value investor like Warren Buffett. They don't look at stocks or, or assets that are undervalued because everybody hates it, like the mining stocks or, in this case, gold. And we'll touch on gold and silver here in a bit. But the fundamentals are absolutely fine. And the, the, the real money is made by investing in something that everybody hates because the price is, is undervalued and depressed, and you just wait for the cycle when everybody suddenly shifts to it. No, Americans are momentum traders, MOMO. This is why nobody was buying Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, 2013. They all bought it in 2017 when the price started rising. 
I mean, you might know somebody who bought Bitcoin when it was sixteen, seventeen, twenty thousand dollars. Well, guess what? They've lost seventy-five percent of their of their investment. Why? Because the sentiment shifted. People don't buy investments these days to hold. They buy it because of momentum. So, uh, what's what's happened? Well, you take a look at Bitcoin. You now you can you can really move to that one day when everything changed. Everything changed. The all-time high for Bitcoin was December seventeenth, twenty eight, uh, twenty seventeen. What happened on that day? The the CME Chicago Mercantile Exchange approved the first paper traded futures contract for Bitcoin. Now I've written articles that show unequivocally using the blockchain data, 99% of all Bitcoin is owned by 1% of the wallets. Those who say that uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can about not be manipulated because it's decentralized doesn't know the first thing about finance. If you own 51% of anything, you can manipulate the price. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. This is why Mark Zuckerberg uh keeps 50 more than 51% of the stock he will never be voted out of his company uh so with that being said once the hedge funds and that came in take a look at what's going on with uh with um gold silver or any commodity or futures contract the most money is not gained by having it go rip roaring high or rip roaring low the most money is gained by creating a range and you skim money as it goes up, you buy the dip, skim money, and that's what the hedge funds and the rest of them are doing. This is why they try to keep gold and silver in a range, because they skim the money with billions of trades on their high-frequency trading computers, and that's what they do. They don't lose money because the risk is limited when things are in a range. Oh, great. Yeah. Now, uh, when you take a look at the cryptocurrencies, um, there was an interesting article that I expounded upon uh, a few weeks ago that 80% of all cryptocurrencies are potentially going to disappear. Of the 1,800 or more that's been created, 90% are now less than a penny. 80% of those, pretty much their projects, they're these things that never went anywhere. They're going to disappear. So you've got the potential you're going to have a very small amount. I mean, let me let me give you a hint on the prices. Bitcoin from its all-time high down 70%. Ethereum down 82%. Ripple, 93%. Bitcoin Cash, 89%. Cardano, 93%. Litecoin um, down 88%. These are extinction-level events. Because if you lose that much, you're going to have no volume. Momentum traders are not going to go into something that is falling in price. So you have a limited amount of people who are playing with it. Now, on the flip side, and I know you've got the uh, the trading room, day trading, day trading uh, uh, cryptocurrencies is absolutely fine if you know what you're doing. You can always skim profits no matter what. The penny stock uh, market is there for a reason and people make tons of money trading penny stocks that are between 0 0.0001 and five ten cents 
Okay, there's a difference between investing and a difference between trading. And so what I'm talking about here is if you know what you're doing and you know the right people and you have the right platforms, trading cryptocurrencies is something that is lucrative if you know what you're doing. Investing in cryptocurrencies, in my personal opinion, is 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 meaningless because take a look at the petro in, in uh, Venezuela. Even the sovereign governments can't get that thing to take off the ground. Correct. Yes. Yes. Now on gold and silver, I'll touch on that real quick. Yeah, go for it. Um, one of the things people got to remember is the gold and silver markets are run by the paper, by the futures market. Um, <clears throat> if you take a look at the COT report, the commitment of traders, it's at record number of short contracts, short short interest. Secondly. Um, right now, if you go to a coin shop, you're not paying $14.87 for an ounce of silver. You're still paying over $18, $18-19. They are not going to give you what the paper price is. The, the physical market and the paper market are disconnected. The amount of supply, and think about this too, $15.50 is the break-even point for the silver industry. They're losing money now in production. Same thing with gold. I think uh, 12 something was uh, that. So unless you are an absolute efficient miner, you're losing money. At this certain point, they're going to cut off supply and supplies are already stretched tighter than a drum. Go to uh, Steve St. Angelo at SRS Rocco. He does fantastic work, fantastic work on showing the supply and what the, the real um, outlay of the physical market is. So for those who are worried about the paper markets and the gold price is down, the silver price is down, man, all you got to do is go back to 2008 when the entire system was collapsing. Gold was at 1,040 and it fell to 740. And within three years, it was at 1920 because when we are in a, the emerging markets and that are in a liquidity crisis, they desperately need liquidity because the uh, trade war and, and the, these loans, these emerging market loans and their recession is demanding that they got to cover these margins. So they're selling off anything they possibly can. And that's why you're seeing a lot of the paper markets um, fall by this, get depressed because they're selling off all the paper so they can get cash to cover the liquidity. But when, uh, when they start, when the currencies start uh, losing confidence, like we're starting to see, Turkey, Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, etc., even China, they're going to move into one of two things. As we see in Turkey, uh, 9% of the population has cryptocurrencies. We also see that most, many of them have gold. Uh, we see German, Germans are getting gold. Even UK has seen an uptick in gold. The physical gold market is still running pretty good. The paper gold market, forget it. So you've got to understand the difference between the two. And at a certain point, as I mentioned, reversion to the mean, all this depressed prices, knocking it down from 1920 um, when JP Morgan rated silver and gold back in uh, 2011, depressing it to where it is now, that's going to explode back uh, to new all-time highs in a short period of time once they lose control of that system. Ken, great insights. Thank you so much, Ken, for a great interview, great show today. 
Uh, please share with our audience, Ken, how they can learn more about your work and then also your social handles, how they can follow Shotgun Economics, please. Yeah, you can go to shotguneconomics.com. Fortunately, when I had to switch over from the old uh, Daily Economist, I didn't lose any of my uh, my articles and my work. So the website looks virtually the same. The name is a little bit different. The logos are different. Um, on YouTube, just do look up uh, Ken Shorgen, S-C-H-O-R-T-G-E-N. Fortunately, it was under that name and not the Daily Economist, so I didn't have to lose my YouTube channel. What I do every day when the markets close at 4 p.m. Eastern time is I do a market wrap-up, and I go through all the different aspects of the market and certain news articles that are important to you. And uh, if you, if anybody wants to help out, uh, especially with YouTube and um, Google ads, you know, going after pretty much cutting everybody is I do have a donate. And if uh, everybody just gave a dollar a month, you know what, everything would be covered and it would be much appreciated. Absolutely. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. For our listeners, please like, share, subscribe. Uh, also visit roguenews.com and uh, make sure you subscribe there as well. So this is uh, CJ delivering another Rogue Mornings with our guest, Ken Shortkin Jr. of Shotgun Economics. Ken, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks again, CJ. All right, everyone. We're signing out. Everyone enjoy your day. Thank you.